Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 22 of the National Security Law Podcast. It's brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. And, and Bobby, I was going to make a reality winner joke, but it, there's, it's just not funny. There, there are so many possibilities there. And thinking about how we discourage our students from using puns in the title of their larvae articles, and yet the temptation to name this episode, you know, Reality Bites and stuff like that is, uh, it's, it's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, let's resist it. Um, let's try. So anyway, Bobby, it's, it's, we're, we're back in the same room. Um, we're back in together at last. Back together again. Uh, back and better than ever. I hope your Michael travels Mike were say. well. My travels. So I uh, had a great time in Rhode Island. Um, didn't so much do the vacation part of it. Work kind of got in the way. Yeah, yeah. I can. I've, I've noticed there have been a few things happening. Uh, one or two. Uh, but anyway, here it is. Tuesday, June sixth, uh, the seventy third anniversary of D Day. D Day. So, so big moment in American history. It's about. Yeah. Bobby, 2 o'clock Central Time. So, you know, I have no idea what Sean Spicer is telling America right now. All right, let's, let's look the other way. We'll look the other way. We'll talk about other things instead. Like what? Well, um, we mentioned reality winners. We need to talk about the, the arrest of, of young reality winners. In, in winner. The, winner. Winner. Singular. Not winners. Yeah. Um, talk about her case. What else? We've got perhaps what, what to geeks like us might be the biggest Supreme Court case of the year. Yep. Timothy Carpenter versus United States of America, which right. is a huge Fourth Amendment case. Huge. I mean, huge. 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 Um, other Supreme Court news, Bobby, obviously the travel ban is moving along before the Supreme Court. The briefs in opposition to the stay are due next Monday. Yep. thought we'd spend a few minutes talking about that. Jim Comey is supposed to be testifying before the Senate on Thursday. I remember that guy. Hey, Jim Comey. Um, apparently, the Trump administration has decided not to invoke executive privilege, parentheses, they couldn't have, <laughs> they, close parentheses. They probably made a wise decision there. That probably wouldn't have helped at all. Uh, since it doesn't really apply to a former government employee who wants voluntarily to testify. But hey, what do I know? Hey, you know, what would, what would the sanction be? We'll, we'll talk about we'll that get there. a little bit. Um, and then if we have time at the end, Bobby, we thought we'd take a minute and give in some of the, you know, unfortunate events events that have been going on in London and Paris and elsewhere. You know, we both have fond memories, I think, of both of those places. And I thought we'd talk about our favorite foreign places to travel, our favorite foreign cities. I like that topic. We'll see how it goes. Very good. Um, so let's start with reality winner. So Bobby, yesterday, two things happened in very short succession. First, The Intercept publishes this really, I think, dramatic headline about an NSA document showing that the Russian government, or at least agents of the Russian government, had actually been directly trying to manipulate not just propaganda surrounding the election, but perhaps even specific election software um, in various localities around the United States. And immediately the internet blows up with talk of the, the Russians, the Russians pwned, uh, you know, the voting machines and or uh, the, the more calm and, and nuanced version, they, they were trying to at least get uh, control of some, which frankly, does, Steve, let me ask you, does that surprise you? No. That, that, this is, I'll take no for a thousand, Alex. That's not terribly surprising. Right. So, so, I mean, obviously the big question there is whether they were successful, um, but of right. course— And there's no claim, just to be clear to your yet. listeners. There's no claim yet, uh, no evidence to believe that, in fact, the Russians controlled, and, and, let alone— took the further step of altering voting information. So Indeed. let's not get out in front of ourselves. No, no, no. But I mean, I, I will say, Bobby, I, hopefully we can at least agree that it's yet further reason to have a full-throated, bipartisan inquiry to fully uncover whatever actually did happen. Yeah, and how about a good reason to, let's just let's just do paper ballots. Paper ballots. <laughs> get out of this business. <laughs> um, the more things change, you know. What's the challenge? I feel like, I feel like uh, what is it? It's Scotty in, what, Star Trek Three. Let's right, see, where he on. takes. You've invoked an even an odd numbered Star Trek. I have Trek, invoked which an odd numbered Star Trek movie. Where, he, where, he, where he, he he screws up the the trans warp drive on the Excelsior by pulling out like a couple of pieces. Like you know, the more sophisticated the plumbing, the easier it is to clog up the drain. Like all of us with these devices, whether it's refrigerators, dishwashers, or phones, with designed obsolescence, where after a certain period of time, usually about the length of your warranty, suddenly all the high technology turns out to be the problem. Uh, I'm not bitter at all about the expensive dishwasher that. Co- uh, you know, collapsed right after the uh, warranty. Not bitter at all. No. I, I see no bitterness in your move eyes. Move along here. Move along. All right. So, um, Bobby, not very long after the Intercept story broke, another story broke about an indictment of a 25-year-old government contractor with the too-true-for-fiction name reality winner yep. um, being charged, Bobby, under the Espionage Act, 18 U.S.C. Section 793E. And we'll talk about why that's interesting. Yep. Um, related to this very leak. Right. And, and of course— 
this also sets off an immediate discussion. Oh, now the Trump administration comes for the leakers. I, I think there's a lot of, of overtelling of the story right. here. This, to me, just to sort of jump out there with this, is this is a, this is a case that any executive branch would have brought. I think so. I don't know any executive branch. Probably, I would posit any recent executive branch, right? So I think I think it's a relatively recent innovation to use the Espionage Act aggressively to go after national security leakers. But um, it's a recent innovation without regard to the partisan ideology of the president, right? That is to it, say, it certainly the, it tells us nothing about Trump. I think that, that's right. That she was arrested. And, and just to press you on that point. Um, would you agree that some kind of serious punitive action would have been taken to any government employee who intentionally stole and then sent to a journalistic outlet uh, classified information? At least once that information was out there. I mean, right, I think the, the one pause I have is that there are circumstances in the past we know where the government did not pursue these, uh, these charges to only keep be, it out. Yeah. To, to keep it secret. No, but, once, but once it's out there, absolutely. Hence the timing yeah. yesterday, right? So, so I think it's important to separate the content of the leak from the illegality of the leak, right? Because hopefully we can you know, chew gum and walk at the same time. I agree. Time. I, I completely agree with that. that They're the both fact important. That this touches the Russia Lago story Russia Lago. in some fashion really doesn't enter the picture for me at all in my um, analysis of this. So, so it doesn't enter the picture for the most part for me. I want to get to why the one place where I think they're connected. But okay. hopefully at the very least, it's yet further reason why calls for serious bipartisan investigation should continue to be pursued from all quarters. Listen, you know, Bobby, I am not I, I may be more of a conspiracy theorist than you, but not much more of a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> right? Like, Dragging me down with you. No, I mean, I'm, listen, I'm not one of those who thinks that, you know, but for Russia, Trump loses the election, right? But yeah. I do think that there's enough reason to wonder about Russia's role that we need a full accounting. Sure. I just don't see the reality winner story really moving the needle. I think that that argument's plenty well made already. And, and this doesn't... It shouldn't. I can't imagine the circumstance where someone who thinks, "Well, I really don't think there's anything there." Well, hold on. Tell right. me more about reality winner. This turns out to change it for me. Yeah. No. No. I mean, I, maybe just one more, one more nail on what I hope is the coffin of opposition to a Russia investigation. Well, so you know what's what's amazing about the timing too. It, there, there was the the interesting aspects you mentioned, but it, wouldn't it have been great if they could wait till the fifteenth of June? <laughs> wouldn't that have been amazing? The Ides of June. Well, you know, it would have been a, a special anniversary. We've mentioned it before on prior shows. Uh, what would it be? The 100th anniversary, Bobby, of the enactment of the Espionage Act. And they could have dropped a charge on the day, like a little birthday gift to the Espionage Act. Um, yeah, I don't think the DOJ was thinking about that. They weren't thinking about that? No, no probably not. But it's like, uh, uh, what is it? Is it uh, Patriot Games, right? The movie version of the Tom Clancy book oh, where it's yeah, like, you know, that. the wiring in this building dates before the war, the first war. <laughs> the first, the great it's, war. It's what we in the electrical business call rare, right? Um, <laughs> I don't remember that part at all. Is this like from the exciting finale at the house? No, no, it's when, it's when. I the, that spoiler It's when somebody. the bookkeeper, well, come on, I think there's a moving wall on spoilers <laughs> for Patriot Games. Yeah. Guess what? Jack Ryan wins. Um <laughs> No, it's when the it's when the bookkeeper um, who's working for the you know the provisional IRA bad yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, note to everybody: there was terrorism in the United Kingdom before there was modern right this Islamic is extremist groups. Um, right, so it, it was it was like the guy finds out that he's being watched by MI five yeah, yeah, yeah. because there's like an electrical fire, okay, right. and then the electrician discovers like the and he sees something that doesn't fit. We're so far into the weeds now. All okay. right, so back right, to so the back Espionage Act. Yeah. I mean, the point of that of that random metaphor that didn't work was it's old, right? And we've talked before on the show about how its age is a problem because it's so capacious, right? Because Congress wrote the statute in ways that if it were considering the same problem today, it wouldn't, partly because the statute predates the Supreme Court's modern First Amendment jurisprudence, um, partly because it predates the Supreme Court's modern vagueness jurisprudence, which requires much more specificity and clarity in criminal statutes. Bobby, the statute predates our entire modern system of classifying national security information. But you know, it, you mentioned what Congress might do if approaching this fresh today. Might there be a more draconian official Maybe. secrets act? No, no. Well, so I don't think there could be an official secrets act. So I think that would have First Amendment problems. But no, but we're talking about what would Congress do if you if you if you ask them, hey guys, right. take up your pen and, and write this the way you might want to do it. So you know, I'm not sure it would even be this. this I, narrow. I, I, I've actually testified on this very question because there used to be a time when Congress actually tried to care about amending the Espionage Act, right? And I think the problem with the Espionage Act is illustrated by the reality winner case, right? Because whatever she is, she's not a spy, 
Um, right? Like we, Bobby, you and I may agree that this kind of national security leak is a crime and that federal law ought to criminalize right. it. It is not the crime Congress thought it was prohibiting when it wrote the Espionage Act. If it would be helpful to change the name and not refer to this, I, so I, I kind of disagree with that to a certain extent. I mean, part of this, they're, they're creating this at a time when there's there's a variety of things going on in terms of the rise of our national security establishment, the, the breadth of secrets, especially cryptological secrets, are increasingly a big deal. Um, Part of it is just to try to not go as far as an official Secrets Act, but to try to stem the possibility of, say, employees, especially on the cryptologic side, right. um, you know, taking information they've got access to and doing something with it, which was beginning to be – there were early signs of that kind of problem. I'm not sure but that you, they I mean, were only thinking of, look, we only want to deal with espionage here of the kind of conventional sort. I don't know. I mean, do you really think that so, – so put aside what Congress in 1917 thought, yeah, right? Because what are we, they're dead. They're dead. Pretty sure. Um, right. I, I guess, uh, Bobby, do you think, right, that U.S. criminal law ought to treat a Chinese spy, right, whether a government employee or a contractor, and a reality winner the same? Well, I think sentencing should should address the, the disparity there. But I not think, culpability. Right. Yeah. And mm. I don't think culpability should vary if what you're doing is knowingly taking classified information and taking it and giving it. Uh, leaking it on purpose. Now, I can imagine you thinking like, well, wait a minute, what about the the really desirable leaks, the public policy desirable leaks? Well, I'm, I'm nodding my head. Right. So uh, you can have, po- I know you want to talk about this, possibilities of First Amendment defenses. I'm not so sure about that. You have how prosecutorial about, how about, discretion how about, how about, and you have sentencing discretion. How about well. a wrongful classification defense? Like what if, what if the, so, so it is a violation of the relevant executive order on classification to classify something that is illegal. Right. That is to say, yeah. if it's illegal, so someone does it anyways. Right. So here's my question. Right. If I disclose something that is illegal and therefore should not have properly been classified in the first place. Right. Would you tolerate an improper classification defense to a criminal prosecution? Do you think a First Amendment vehicle is the way to wedge that in there? I mean, it, in, as a matter of equity, right. The yeah. way you've structured the hypothetical, of course, there, there needs to be some out there where that person doesn't get a drink. But there hasn't outcome. been historically. Well, right. I, I mean, the two courts. Have the, we had a case? That's there have been two exactly cases like that. Not exactly like that, but there have been two cases where courts have poo-pooed. So the Ninth Circuit in a 1978 case, that's I think, called f- Boyce. Technical legal term from the old French. Yes, poo-pooed. Uh, it's right <laughs> up there in Black's Law Dictionary. Um, so there's a 1978 case from the Ninth Circuit called Boyce, and there's a more recent district court case. I cannot remember which one. Both of which have suggested that improper classification is not a valid defense to an Espionage Act prosecution under any circumstance. Yeah. Well, that's what, well that, that's why my instinct was to ask whether you think the First Amendment could be the vehicle to force it in there. So then the question is, what would any, for, you know, whether reality winners is the case or not? Well, clearly not, in my opinion. I mean, right. what, what is there to say in favor of what she did? She just took an important insight that our intelligence community had acquired, presumably through SIGINT, and, and just gave it to the Intercept so that everyone could know about it. Yeah, but l- let, me, let me sort of push back on that for a second, not because I disagree with you, but because I like to be contrarian, okay. right? Um, contrast what Reality Winner disclosed, right, with what Edward Snowden disclosed. So Edward Snowden disclosed methods and capabilities, right, in ways that Reality Winner did not, right? Reality Winner disclosed the... I will happily agree that Snowden did things much worse than what Reality right, Winner did. Right, right. But hold on a second, but let me back up, right? And that, and that in that sense... Right. The, it wasn't just that what's known disclosed was classified. It was that in disclosing it, he was not just revealing the content of various surveillance programs, but the existence and mechanisms of various surveillance programs, whereas all the peers reality winners alleged to have you know, leaked is one document right, that does not itself reveal the means by which it was obtained. Right. If, if the point of it is that she should have an outcome that's less draconian than whatever outcome Edward Snowden notionally would, would have, I think we're in total agreement. But then the question is, is there balancing, right? So, so this comes back to the First Amendment point. So in a different context, not national security, right, in public employee speech, Bobby, there's something called pickering balancing, mm-hmm. right? Pickering sure. balancing is from this 1968 Supreme Court case, and it's about when employees can be, I think, disciplined or terminated. Mm-hmm. Um, for for speech, right, right, and the Supreme Court says there's a First Amendment interest if the the public employee is speaking on a matter right. of such significant public concern that it overwhelms and outweighs, right, the government employer's right. interest. The government has to be able to regulate the workplace to some degree as an employer, but not absolutely if the right. matter is on sufficient public concern. Do you have so so? I guess to to put the matter bluntly, do you ever think? Can you imagine any national security leak? 
that would be of such Bobby gross and immense public concern that you would think a defendant would have a First Amendment How defense. Would you, if, if we were going to adopt a doctrinal category of public concern that yeah. opens the door to, to otherwise avoiding obvious criminal liability, how do you define and cabin the scope of that category? Well, ha- and listen, it happens in the public employee speech cases, right? I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of cases trying to put meat on that bone and saying, you know, and applying the balancing test. Right, one which way, way does other. that cut, right? It, it, that's <laughs> in, that, I recall this from my clerking days. There, there were lots of these cases, and it was one of those areas where because of the indeterminacy of the doctrinal category, and any of my former students who are listening will be thinking, oh, God, here he goes again about the buckets. Yeah. Yes, the buckets. There are buckets. Sometimes the buckets are clear in their definitional scope, yes. and a lot of times they're fun. To those, to those like four or five of our listeners who haven't actually had class with one of both of us, um, Bobby is very um, talented at using buckets as a illustrative metaphor. I'm not sure talent is the right word, but I definitely am drawn to doing it. Um, and the point being that it seems the law treats doctrinal categories as fact pattern categories, like they're buckets. Like you, you can tell yeah, something's no, no, look, in I, or out. I agree. I guess so. Here's yeah. my problem, right? I am so I am I, on this issue, Bobby. I'm probably somewhere between you and say someone like Jamil Jaffer, right? Our, our good friend and now the director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia, you know, Jamil, I think, is of the view that there ought to be a fairly strong First Amendment defense in these cases. I think that way lies madness. I mean, everyone's going to be the judge of this. Juries are going to be the judge of this. Yeah, I, I, I guess I just worry that that a categorical prohibition on a First Amendment defense is problematic in the other direction. And I wonder if there's a value to what Hal Edgar and Benno Schmidt in their landmark 1973 Columbia Law Review article on the Espionage Act called benign indeterminacy, right? That maybe we should sort of be careful not to create too strong of a rule one way or the other in the hope that like somewhere in the middle is the right answer. Well, so I think we've we've been circling around this topic and just to kind of track the readers, the listeners back to where we are. We, we've we got a case here that's probably not a great vehicle for these types of issues. That's right. um, Although, Bobby, there's one curious feature about this case that I'd love to get your, your thoughts yeah. on, right? So most leak prosecutions are brought under Section 793D of the Espionage Act, right? This is the, the provision that makes it unlawful for those lawfully having access to national security information who then disclose right. it. Right. Most, most leakers, not all have access to it in the course of their job, and then they leak it. Right. Um, Reality winner, at least so far, and this could Bobby just be a placeholder indictment, right? It was actually being charged under 793E, which is unauthorized access. Right. It looks like, so some context here, she was a four months in employee of some contractor uh, in Atlanta, so near the NSA, presumably in connection with the NSA's facility in in, in Georgia. Um, And again, you have to ask, what is going on with all these contractors <laughs> in the in, and in case after case right. the, these situations all involve the contractors well, that are right. not NSA and, and what happened to all of the post Snowden reforms that we were told were supposed to prevent this from happening? Right. Well, again. and of course, notice the the mechanism through which she got caught. We all have heard endlessly about she got caught because you were able to tell something about the printing of yep. the copy. Those post-known reforms you're referring to yeah. may well have been what forced her to print out a copy of something and thus which made then, it really yeah. super easy to find her. So I think actually the very quick arrest, which you emphasized earlier, yeah. probably tells you something about um, the greater extent to which people are monitoring this. Now, here's a question. Now. Although I don't know how quick they, the arrest was. They, right? I mean, I th- right, that is to say, like, it seems like they, they were waiting until this Once came it got out. out. No, right. but, but they knew exactly who to go for it. Yeah. Um, query, you know, why can't the system, if it's capable of telling who's printing what documents, Stop them from and printing this in is the a first document place. she shouldn't have had access right. to. How did she have access That's the to question. something she didn't have need to know? Right. So um, let me just, for, for legal purposes, Bobby, the reason why I'm interested in the distinction between 793D yes. and 793E, 793E is the statute that I think really troubles the press, right? Because uh, if ever right, there because was, they're the ones who get stuff without, without and don't have access. Right. And so 793E, I think Susan Buckley once called it one of the scariest statutes around, right? That the concern is that this is the statute that would allow for the prosecution of third parties under the Espionage Act, which obviously right. raises lots of real, th- there are some right. real First Amendment concerns. Sure. And I completely agree. That's a super sensitive and important area. That's not reality winner. That's not her case. She is not a third party. She's an employee right. who had access to NSA But stuff. if it's unauthorized access, Bobby, do you think we might be seeing charges under the less con controversial Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because it sounds like maybe she accessed a government computer without auth- proper authorization. Yeah, I mean, if it turns out, you, you almost wonder why that wasn't there to begin with. But remember, too, when, when arrests are announced... Right. You, you, go, you go with what's the, obvious. The document in this case, you know, we, we have very little information. They can super... I don't know if it was a uh, criminal complaint and information or it was an indictment. Either way, I'm sure if it doesn't plead out quickly, eventually there will be more charges added in Computer Probably. Fraud and Abuse Act. 
if her mechanism of getting this was in fact to access it electronically, it's right. possible somebody left it lying around, she grabbed it, printed it. So let me see if I can recap what I think are the highlights. And if I'm saying anything you don't agree with, stop me. Oh, right? I will. So highlight number one, folks should treat the content of the leak and the leak itself as different, but, yeah. but, but separately important stories. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I, I mean, my view is that the the content here. You know how important is a it's up to you, but yeah. just but but that but that, separate that, that you can think that they're both important, right? That they're not they're not inversely proportional yeah. to each but, other. But and more importantly, there's just the fact that she's been arrested, right. and she's being prosecuted. It could have been a story about about Chinese commercial practices or WTO same issues. Thing. Right. Same outcome. Okay. Um, number two, Bobby. I don't think either of us think that there's anything. Noteworthy, specifically Trumpian, about this particular indictment. Completely. This this could have been, I would say, any presidency. Oh, and, and at the very least, I would say I have no doubt that the Obama Justice Department would have brought this exact yeah. prosecution. Yeah. And I would say so would Reagan, Bush, Bush, Carter, Ford, Nixon, Carter? Johnson. You, you, th you think the Carter administration would just say, oh, too bad. I, I, Bobby, I do think, and, and indeed I've studied this and Charlie Savage has as well, I do think there has been an uptick in the government's, um, how should I say, um, interest in, right, aggressively pursuing sure, prosecution. Sure, but she's an easy case. I mean, this is like a paradigm case. An employee uh, improperly grabs the information nothing, and turns it nothing, over to a journalist. No, nothing depends on this disagreement, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the point is any current, right, president, regardless of what, sure. regardless of their Trump Trumpness, would have done this. And then point number three, Bobby, right, that still raises the ongoing debate, although perhaps not well joined in her case. Right about when, if ever, a leaker might have a defense justifying their leak. Right, and she, to be clear, my position is this: she doesn't even come near enough to smell that argument, in my opinion. I think that's right, but I think that every time this comes up, we ought to at least remind folks that this isn't settled. Sure, right. Th that, th th there could be other cases. Um, sure. Right, if there was ever a prosecution of Snowden. Of Snowden. Yeah, but right? she's far from it. Uh, I agree in lots of directions. Indeed. All right, so so I guess. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Maybe. Yeah. Because um, who knows what twists and turns that one may take. Well, indeed. So speaking of twists and turns in Russia, right? So, Bobby, um, Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern, right? 9 a.m. Central. Uh, I guess that's what? Uh, 4 a.m. in Hawaii, right? Uh, is Jim Comey's Must first appearance on, on Capitol Hill. Um, so, Bobby, my favorite headline on the Comey story is apparently the battle royale that's going on in the White House right now because Trump wants to live tweet the hearing? No, is that right? And I apparently his advisors that. are desperate to schedule something. Oh, I want him to live tweet it. So do I. Like, <laughs> how fun would that be? Look, we, as he himself tweeted earlier, um, you know, everyone. He, he said something to the effect of, "This, you know, this is how I get my unvarnished views out there." Well, let's know what those are. I was going to say, let, um, let the light. We'll shine. come back to those views when we get back to the travel yes, ban. It, it's been a, I, you know, about ten days ago, right? There was this big story in the Wall Street Journal about how. There were suggestions within the White House that Trump was going to start vetting his tweets with lawyers. Bobby, it does not appear that that suggestion has taken. Oh, I don't. Yeah, look, that guy's not taking direction from anybody no. on something that really matters to him. Quite. And communicating directly through tweets obviously matters to him a great deal. Which is going to help him a whole lot in the Supreme Court. Well, and that raises Jack Goldsmith. We're, we're, we're digressing here, but that raises Jack Goldsmith's brilliant insight that maybe his goal is not to win in the Supreme Court. I don't know. So, so we'll get to the travel ban. I don't want to no. prejudge that conversation. Um, no. Bobby, quickly on the Comey hearing, right? Yeah. My, my quick sense of the hearing, because we're not going to probably record another episode before. Right, right, right. Um, right my, yeah, I'm interested in what, whether you think this is actually going to be all that. So I think we're going to learn exceptionally little about Russia Right. Oh yeah. And a little more about Comey's interactions with the president. Right. That I, that to me, what what I'm looking for Thursday, I don't think Comey's going to say much at all about the actual investigation into the campaign's interaction with the Russian government. Yeah, no way. He's not going to start blabbing about especially the investigation any more now than he did before. Well, and especially because he's already met with Bob Mueller, right? Yeah. And I'm sure that Mueller was very specific about things that he did not want him to talk about Indeed, and I'm sure Jim already felt all that. I, I think you're totally right on that. So, so to me, the headlines are all going to be about what Comey confirms Right. And whether indeed he can he, he is able to substantiate specific conversations he had with the president relating to the Russia investigation or other aspects of his job as FBI director. I think that's right. And, and of course, as you say, first of all, I'm completely in agreement. Yes, I think that, that's uh, one. There you go. We finally we've got one today. That's hey. good. Back to our back to our usual. I was going to say conformity. Right. Um, he's he'll be asked a lot and will tell dramatic uh, accounts, I'm sure, of those one on one conversations 
And I seriously doubt there will be any real variance between what he testifies to and what's been reported, um, thing, things that were shared, some of it shared by our friend Ben Wittes. Yep. Um, a lot of this stuff's been Ours in the media. Ours and Jim's friend. And, yeah, indeed. <laughs> a lot of this has been in the media uh, in excruciating detail already. I think it's going to get treated and will be broadcast as if no one's ever heard it before, but it's all going to be like what we've heard in recent weeks. Yeah, I guess the question is, is there is there more than just he said, he said here, right? And I think one of the things I'm going to be interested to see is I assume senators will push Comey on which conversations he has memorialized, on whether he will produce Right, memos, memorializing yeah, no, these me, conversations. That's the interesting thing: is will will this occasion shed any light on who's going to have access right. to those memos, right. and, and to what extent do they actually back up some of the accounts that are already? And out so, there. so to me, that's going to be the big. You know, whatever else comes out of Thursday, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, um, but I, I, I do tend to agree with you that this is going to be something that will be a political uh, shock to the system. Indeed. But it's not for those of us following this closely. I'm not expecting to actually learn a lot. No, no, lots of headlines. You know. Not we'll see we'll see what comes out of it. Bobby obviously we'll probably come back to that next week. Yep. Um, also today news that Michael Flynn is actually at least partly complying with some of the subpoenas. Um, so so we've discussed before Bobby on the podcast that a categorical Fifth Amendment claim is really yeah. not going to work in this context. Yep. Surely there are large quantities of documents Michael Flynn has in his possession that do not incriminate him. Right, that are properly yeah. the subject of a congressional subpoena. Yeah, yep. Um, so obviously that appears to be moving along. Yeah, and that you know the way you put it there underscores the point that I think for people who don't follow criminal investigations, sort of on a routine basis, there's almost this sense that it should be more like a TV show where the, the right. topic arises and why aren't we hearing something right now resolving this? Yeah, that's not how this normally works. It's, it's we don't come back from commercial with a with a hot tip. Yeah, anyone who's been involved in any kind of litigation understands that Seriously. it's a long and negotiated process, especially and, when and the stakes paperwork, are high and paperwork driven. That's right. And so Flynn's got counsel. I don't know who represents him, but I'm sure he's got good counsel, and they are meticulously uh, doing no more than they have to, and it's all part of a big dance that could result in a plea I'm or gonna, may not. I'm going to respectfully concur in the judgment that Flynn has counsel and maybe, it, not, maybe not echo that he has good counsel. I, do, do we know who it is? I, I don't remember his name, but, but, but someone who I think was already tweeting about Flynn's entitlement to immunity, which I think is— Ah, well, one, one should probably not tweet about your client's activities. Um, no, uh, one could also add clients should not tweet about their, their own court cases. <laughs> but, but, but we digress. All right. We digress. Before we get to the travel ban, because I do want to get to the travel ban— yeah. Um, last point on sort of the universe of the administration in Russia is the since last we we recorded Bobby the Jared Kushner back channel story, right? This strikes me as sort of something that is a much bigger you know like political issue than legal one. Yeah, that's right. I think. right that that you know what the heck is someone like Jared Kushner doing trying to set up this kind of back channel, but because he didn't. Right? Like, you know, I, I looked at all the relevant statutes, right? I think I even yeah. tweeted about 794. I mean, there's just, until and unless you're actually communicating, I mean, imagine he sets up a back channel. And imagine the whole purpose of the back channel is to discuss, you know, which hockey players Jared's favorite <laughs> NHL team should draft or what <laughs> movies, you know, President Putin has seen in the last couple of weeks. Bobby, dumb, stupid, not illegal. Right, right. It's this. I think is as you say. It's a political story. It's a policy story. And right. let's remind people that's There's an important difference. distinction. <laughs> it is a very serious policy story. Yes. To me, that's what's interesting yes. about it. It's a political story. Sure, that's the part that that I don't enjoy paying attention to. Yes, I don't see the legal angle here. Although you could get there if you start talking about uh, whether he disclosed these communications. Well, so 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 this so this is this is where I was going. Yeah. Right. So to me, there are two legal angles here, but they're both implications, not direct pieces. Bingo. Right. Big legal implication number one: it is a felony to um, to willfully to to, to sign your SF eighty six willfully knowing. That you have failed to disclose material information. Yep, and this is pretty material, isn't it? I would think that. So not just this, but like the degree and volume and depth of Jared Kushner's contacts, apparently, right, with senior Russian officials, Bobby, to not disclose any of right. them on the SF eighty six. Right, and he's not in a situation like you know. So Sessions has been taking some. Boy, Sessions is having a bad week, but Whew. Jeff Sessions is taking a bunch of lumps for not disclosing contacts he had as a senator. Things you know, meetings with foreign diplomats. That may but have that's happened. because of what he testified to at his confirmation hearing. Right, but I'm just saying, like, so this is different in kind in that you know, Sessions. There's whatever one thinks of that defense. 
his claim is that, look, I was told that if I was doing it in my capacity as a senator, that's not the sort of thing they're looking for, so just leave right. it off. And that has so a whiff of, of plausibility. Yeah, it, exactly. It has at least a whiff of plausibility, um, maybe bad advice, but he, I could see where someone got that and didn't right. know better. Um, this, is, this is like straight out of a cartoonish example you might use in explaining to someone why it's important that right. we disclose all our foreign contacts when trying to get a clearance. Bobby, I think this is right. You and I, I think, have both completed SF-86s in our lives. I declined to answer that. Really? Only the Chinese know. Um, I, okay, I think anyone looking at your CV would be pretty confident that because of your yeah, work no, I, on the detainee task force, I previously had a clearance. Right. Okay. Um, and and I actually at one at one misbegotten point in my life was considering accepting a job for which I would have needed a clearance. Uh huh. Um, I thought better of it. All right. Um, it's a story for another time when we bring booze into the podcast. You mean more booze? More booze. No, I'm um, just we're but, but Bobby, having I mean having filled out an SF eighty six, like this is not something that you just you know oh I forgot where I lived for three months in twenty fourteen. No, no, this is like this is front and center right. this sort of thing. There, right. it's it's a pain. It, it's it's one of the least appealing parts. Thinking about foreign, but contacts. it's not missable, right? I mean, no, like no, no, it's it's the centerpiece. It's right. one of the centerpieces. So so this could be a problem. And then and then the last piece of this, Bobby, right? So the other implication to me legally of all of this is it increasingly looks like Jared Kushner and Flynn were both in this together, right? And one of the odd things I've been having trouble figuring out is why this administration seems so hell-bent on protecting Michael Flynn, right? In in other scenarios, Flynn would easily have been the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. So I think, in part, there's, there's probably a little bit of uh, siege mentality, right? We have an endless array of enemies. Yeah. They're coming for one of our insiders on the team. There is this sort of almost, not to borrow a phrase, a, a locker room loyalty level <laughs> displayed by the president towards <laughs> Mike Flynn. Um, so I don't think it's that... that it's not appealing and it's not right, but I don't think it's that hard to understand that they've got this bizarre self-inflicted wound kind of bunker mentality. I wonder, if, but, I, but I wonder, so, so this is where, again, our different levels of conspiracy come to light, right? Because I wonder if there's more here that they actually are worried that Flynn could implicate I'm not yeah. saying President Trump, but at least Jared Kushner, right, in right. ways that would well, one be of really the One of the interesting things, let's flag this for our listeners to watch out for, if and when there might ever be a pardon. Right. I mean, you could take right. a lot of heat off of Mike Flynn if you're the president by just peremptorily pardoning the guy. Do it tomorrow. And, and, right. and never worry and, about him flipping. And eat the controversy. Right. Now, of course, as soon as you do it, th- boy, the implication is so strong that you're trying to s- keep him quiet. And so they're going to wait until they have to. Do you think, I mean. But I, I won't be surprised if they do it, if Bo- he gets indicted. Bobby, I don't know. I wonder, I mean, do you think that if the president tomorrow pardoned Flynn, right, and said, listen, you know, yeah. I just want to clear the air. Yeah. I want to get past this. Yeah. It's a time to move on. That'll be what he says. Do you really think that, like, congressional Republicans would push back? Is the me- I don't know that that's the measure that that's the only one I'm concerned with. No, but, but, I mean, uh, but, but like I mean, you know, given who's in charge, well, and, right and now, there is no pushing back, right? I mean, the pardon's the pardon. Well, so. no, no, but but even politically, right? I mean, that 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 kind of move in the past might have provoked a backlash on Capitol Hill, and it's not clear to me that it would. I I don't know how strong the same party backlash ever is in these situations. Yeah. To yeah. be honest, I mean, yeah. I don't I don't think that there's a you know, different set of virtues that, on that, the that, Democratic that, side. That one-party rule that's preventing President Trump from filling all of these executive branch positions. <laughs> it was kind of funny to see him uh, blasting uh, the, Democrats. The, well, you know, he did uh, He did manage to get at least a few nominations out the other day. So uh, in- Indeed, uh, um, including, I mean, you know, just to, to flat our, our, our mutual colleague and friend, Cully Stimson, to be general counsel of the Navy. Cully Stimson. Right, that's, Steve that's Bradbury cool. to be general counsel of the Department of Transportation. Transportation, right. Um, so, so there's Owen some West. Movement? This is a this one was at the bottom of the list, but I think in some ways it's super interesting. The Owen West will be the he was a super interesting fellow. Be the uh, um, the Solix uh, um, Special Operations Low Intensity Conflict yep. uh, uh, under Deputy. No, what, what is that? Assistant Secretary. Assistant Secretary, right? Yeah. Or Deputy that, Assistant Secretary. Yeah, no, that's an important position because by law, the the Solik, uh Assistant Secretary, if I'm getting that right, is assistant. Uh, is in the chain of command right. that runs from the president to secretary of defense to Solik, then to SOCOM, which right. I think is fascinating. Right. No, no. I mean, listen. There's, there's, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's nuts for the president to blame Democrats for the remarkably few number of senior national security positions that he's filled in his first, how you know, five months in office, but. Um, I think in this regard, you know, you and I may quibble about individual nominees, but but filling these jobs is good, 
right? Like yeah. filling these jobs is something that should have happened and should keep happening. Yeah, I actually I looked at this slide and I thought lots of lots of great nominees there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and I know you may have seen it slightly differently. Um, we, we've we've not yet gotten to the single most interesting thing that. No, no, but before we do, There's I want more. I want to get to President Trump's most important nominee to date, right? Which is oh. Justice Gorsuch, because um, the travel ban has now reached the Supreme Court. Oh yes, of right? course. Um, so so the Supreme Court um, late last week, Bobby, I think late on a Thursday night. This is one of the things that was awesome on my vacation. Um, <laughs> The, the, the Solicitor General filed three things in the Supreme Court relevant to the travel ban. First, a cert petition seeking to review the Fourth Circuit's en banc ruling affirming the injunction against the travel ban. Mm -hmm. Second, an application for a stay of that injunction pending, stay pending. review, yeah. which would have allowed the executive order to go back into effect. And Bobby, third, an application for a stay of the district court order in Hawaii, right, so that the three pieces together would allow the executive order to go into effect while the Supreme Court decides whether to take the case. And makes the Fourth Circuit case the vehicle. Um, yeah, although at that point it doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, right, once, right, once you're there. Um, so I want to sort of flag, Bobby, to me a couple of interesting things about this procedural move. Lay it on me. Um, interesting thing number one, I don't understand why the government didn't just ask the Supreme Court to take the Ninth Circuit case too, right? So to remind our listeners, the Ninth Circuit heard oral argument a week after the Fourth Circuit. Um, it could issue a decision any day now. Government would have been well within its rights, Bobby, once it filed a cert petition in the Fourth Circuit case to also seek something called cert before judgment, right, right in the Ninth Circuit. They didn't do that. Well, but is it, is it as simple as just not a pig in the poke? You don't know what that judgment's going to look like. I mean, you have a pretty good guess, but you don't really know. Why bother with it? Oh, why not but, just try to get this? But see, here's the thing. that One of the government's real, I think, good arguments for, for, for a stay, for letting this go into effect, is one of the points that they've been arguing is that the, the Hawaii injunction, as opposed to the Maryland injunction, actually blocks not just the substantive provisions of the travel ban, but also some of the procedural provisions. Mm -hmm. And so they haven't been able to even conduct some of the reviews that they were supposed to be conducting. Um, this move, by taking the, the route that they've taken, Bobby, they're giving the Ninth Circuit a perfect opportunity to hand down a ruling in the next 10 days that narrows the Hawaii injunction in a way that makes that argument go away. Interesting. And that actually makes it harder for the government to justify a stay in the Supreme Court. So I actually think it was a- Just a slip up then. I, I think it was a real tactical error on the government's part and one that makes no sense to me. Um, Anyway, to whatever, the Supreme Court nerdistry notwithstanding. Um, the, the <laughs> Let me just say, that was some fine nerdistry. I was not aware of that nuance. I hey, applaud you, sir. I teach federal courts for a living. <laughs> um, I didn't just stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Um, so, so the respondents' um, responses to the stays are due on Monday, right? Next Monday, I think that's June 12th. Mm -hmm. um, I assume that the Supreme Court will rule on the stays, Bobby, perhaps as early as the end of next week. And do you think there's much of a chance that they're going to stay these orders? I'd be really surprised. I mean, so, so let me sort of say why, right? I actually am not super confident how the Supreme Court would rule on the merits if it ruled on the merits. Right. But um, the government has a real uphill battle on the stay. And here's why, right? When the Supreme Court considers a stay in conjunction with a cert petition, it looks to three factors, right? It looks to the likelihood that the uh, that they're going to side with the requesting party on the merit. Well, sorry, sorry. Looks to the likelihood they're going to grant cert. Yep. Then looks to the likelihood that they're going to side with the party requesting a stay. Like, hey, you know, is this right. going to be worth the trouble? We're going to take the case, and we think you're going to win. Right. And then, but then there's the third factor, Bobby, which is what is the harm yep. to the requesting party from not granting a stay pending certiorari. Bobby, in this case, we have two nationwide injunctions that have been in place for as long as these executive orders yeah, have been yeah. on the books. Like, I... Is the Supreme Court really going to disrupt the status quo and potentially for five or six months because the oral argument wouldn't be till October? Right. That is the funny thing about the circumstance. The status quo is, in fact, no Stayed. action. Yeah. Right. right. And so so I, I think that the government the, the so so the second curious thing the government did in what it filed on Thursday is it said we want expedited briefing, Bobby, but not expedited argument. And I think that, too, that, was a mistake. That's certainly, well, okay, that's interesting. Does that suggest that there's less exigency to get this wrapped up, and therefore you don't need the stay? Well, I think at the very least it puts more pressure on the stay, right? So, so imagine I'm justice neutral, right? I'm justice neutral. I, I, all I care about is the law, right? I have no political views one way or the other. Um, I am now faced, right, with the very real specter of allowing this executive order, which two different district courts have enjoined, mm -hmm. to go into effect for five or six months, 
right, before I'm going to have oral arguments or shirari. And you may end up deciding this is unconstitutional. And right. In the meantime. Versus, but, right, versus, oh, it's a couple weeks, right? Yeah. And so, so I think the government put a lot more weight and pressure on their stay application by saying, oh, we want to a briefing, but you can hear it in the fall. So this comes back to my point earlier about to what extent is there some uh, maybe a little bit of self-sabotage going on to put <laughs> the courts in the villain's role from the point of view of the base that is excited about Trump's order. So I don't know if this was the SG's intent. <laughs> Probably not. But but the, the various tweets from the president over the weekend, first in response to the terrorist attacks in London, um, and by the way, what the hell is he doing picking a fight with the mayor of London in the middle of a terrorist attack? Um, but then second, Monday morning, his four-tweet tweet storm about the executive order suggesting both, one, that he didn't actually do the thing. It was the Justice Department. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's spell that one out because that one's pretty, pretty crazy. There's a tweet that says, uh, basically, Justice Department, why in the world did you talk? Why in the world did you put forward this second executive order that's, that's watered down? No, no, so, so, watered no, no. Down. The specific language was watered, watered down, down and politically correct. Yes. Right? And it reaction like this was in reaction and, and to this a, is in reference to an executive order that he, he signed, issued. Right. It's him. I mean, surely what happened, right, is that the yeah, Justice they, Department came to him and said, you should sign this executive order right. so we can win in court. White said, you got to do it. This is the only way this is going to work. And, and he, then he and lost he, in and court. And he said some bad words, signed the thing, and then it still didn't work. And now he's mad about it, and he's throwing the Justice Department under the bus. Well, so here's the problem, right? So, so, so folks on Twitter have been sort of apoplectic in one way or the other, depending upon their That's sympathy or not. Right. Um, so I don't think the tweets, like, seal the deal. Right, because it's not like the tweet says, "I hate Muslims." No, therefore I, we need this I, I agree. Order. I think there's a way big overreaction to what the cost of the tweet right. was. It's more, it's more amorphous than that. It's atmospheric. It's a thumb in the eye of the justices, daring them to take the case. Not only that, daring right, them to rule against. But them. not only that, the government's best argument in defense of the travel ban, Bobby, yeah. is to just look at the executive order. Right. Yes. Just keep it in the four square, four corners of the document. Right. And don't look past executive order. Oh, he said some nasty stuff a while ago. Who hasn't? Right. Oh, and, and by the way, let's not forget that this is a pause. Right. To give us temporary time. pause. Temporary pause to give us time. It's to not reconsider. a ban. It's not a ban. Repeatedly, the press secretary is saying it's not a ban. Quit calling it a right. ban. It's the word that you people came up with. The president says it's a ban. And right. So so leaving aside the substance of his tweet, which was ill-informed and stupid enough, right? The timing of the tweet is going to make it really hard for the Solicitor General to argue with a straight face that, you know, you should just look at the four corners of the executive no, order. No, it makes it almost impossible. And, in, you know, back during the, uh, the first sort of four or five years of the post-9-11 period, when, when the Supreme Court was beginning to, to engage yeah. on war and terrorism-related issues, it became very au courant in uh, academic circles to talk about the extent to which the court is playing this sort of offshore balancing yep. uh, role. Like I the, the term I used was creeping incrementalism. Creeping incrementalism. Getting in there where it felt it needs to but send slowly shots and softly. across the bow, right? And how, tr- how important trust and a sense of playing within the Overton right. window, within the bounds and the norms. Right. All of this activity, whether purposeful or not, is about as well calculated as it could be to force the court to take this case, to incline them not to uh, d- defer, to afford a presumption of regularity. Correct. All the features that normally would make us think the president's bound to win in an right. immigration case. He's doing his level best to have it come out the other way, possibly unintentionally out of the sheer sort of bull in the china shop nature of who he is. I think it's uh, that. It probably is, although you, you do... I know. I, I, I know. I, I know. There's, there's, I know. There's a meme out there that this is a super sophisticated ploy to delegitimize the courts. I, I don't think it's super sophisticated. I do think that's just an element of it that makes it easier as you begin bullying around yeah. and you consciously know. Look, worst case scenario, they rule against us, and this just shows what a bunch of politicians they are. Yeah. I. I. You know. I think it's gonna. So. So if a Supreme Court with his own nominee, right, rules against him. You know, his his sponsorship of people like, hey, you're my attorney general. Well, this is the Hey, thing. you're my national so, advisor. So, None of that cuts any ice with this So guy. the irony is, right, that I actually th- – so I think the most important votes legally, right, on the stay applications are those of Justice Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts. And remember, listeners, although it only takes four votes to grant cert, it takes five to grant a stay. But, Bobby, imagine the message it would send 
if the Supreme Court denies the applications for a stay either unanimously yeah. or like seven to two or eight to one, and yeah. Gorsuch is in the majority. I will predict for you that Gore. I, I suppose there are people out there who just assume that well, Gorsuch was appointed by the guy, so he's going to rule in his favor. Historically, that ain't how it's historically worked, and it, there's no reason in what you see of the writings of Neil right. Gorsuch and what we know about him as a person to think that he's anybody's person. So, so I, I would just say this: uh, my prediction for you know, and, and it's worth exactly what you paid for it, dear listeners. Right. My prediction is that the Supreme Court denies the stays, uh, both of them. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe a couple of maybe yeah. a couple of dissents. Um, I think there will be a concurring opinion, right, from the Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy, and maybe joined by some others, that really sort of reiterates how denials of stays are not, you know, are, are not on the merits. Blah yes, blah blah yes, blah yes, blah. Yes, yes. Um, but, pay, pay no attention to the. No, right. Um, but but the biggest reason why Bobby is because to grant a stay in this posture yeah. is basically to rule for the government on the merits, right? Because you're you have to accept right. the national security arguments in order to grant a stay that would compel, I think, right. the answer on the merits. Right. Again, no one's paid for this advice or the, this uh, prediction, but I think you're completely right about that. That's two. Okay. Yeah. All um, right. But speaking of the Supreme Court, Bobby, something much more interesting yeah, happened it, yesterday. Yes. Yes. I think this is this is much more consequential from outside the political domain. This is actually law and policy. Right. Big deal. All right. So the Supreme Court, Bobby, yesterday granted a case, meaning it added to its argument calendar for next term starting in October, um, a case called Carpenter versus United States. Um, Bobby, this is a case about historical cell site location information, or CSLI. And you know, one of the, one of the fun little twists in the fact pattern, uh, the, the the defendant, the the person here who's uh, the, there are a number of individuals who were arrested. Timothy Carter Carpenter's the one who's an issue. Steve, back in 2010 and 11, through the winter that year, um, there was a group of guys around the Michigan and Ohio areas, I believe. They were they were a group that would knock off poor radio shacks, which were already in trouble. We now know they were doomed. Radio shacks and T-Mobile stores. They'd go in there. They'd they'd force everybody into the back, and then they'd steal all the you know the iPhones and such. And they did it a, a number of times. One of the conspirators, for whatever reason, I don't know the details, uh, eventually started talking to the feds. Um, identified Carpenter and others. So they began building the case against Carpenter and others in part by turning to a statute known as the Stored Communications Act. Uh-huh. We'll do a quick little primer on uh, the Stored Communications Act. This is a 1986 law. It comes from, uh, it's part of the larger Electronic Communications Privacy Act in 1986. Under the Stored Communications Act, or SCA as it's sometimes called, um, there are an, an endless array of painfully complex rules about when certain types of content and non-content electronic data, content or not, uh, can be provided to the government or indeed must be and what the the tools are. By providers. By providers. Right, so that's to say, so it's not, Bobby, you providing your data. It's your phone company. It's your phone company, your cable company, that sort of thing. Right. So one of the tools that's in there is a provision known as the D order. This 27, is, this is 18 USC 2703 D, sports fans. And therefore, the clever name, the D order. What's the D order? This means you go to a magistrate judge, you make a showing that the non-content information you're seeking is, quote, relevant and material to an ongoing criminal investigation. Relevant and material, Steve. Not that you have probable cause, but the lighter standard, the lesser standard, relevant and material. So you might ask, well, wait a minute. How can you go compel somebody to produce all this very important information without, without a warrant? Without a warrant, without the probable cause standard being met? The answer is that it's long been Fourth Amendment doctrine that when information is non-content information in the hands of a third party, the third party doctrine, it's it's not uh, subject to a reasonable expectation of privacy. Therefore, the Fourth Amendment doesn't attach to the first. It's not it's not a, a search. All right. So let's so let's so let's sort of put this in context, right? So there's this thing called the third party doctrine, right, which stems from a 1979 case called Smith versus Maryland. Bobby, I love this completely irrelevant fact about Smith versus Maryland. It's older than I am. Um, it is, it is, and it is definitely not older than I am, and I don't really like that factoid at all. <laughs> um, so, so the theory behind the third-party doctrine is that when we voluntarily, and voluntariness matters here, but when we voluntarily provide data to our phone companies, say, we're basically surrendering control over that data, right? We are, we're forfeiting our right to control what the phone company does with it, right? Congress can impose statutory rules on, say, the company's ability to sell that data, to it's, share it with other companies. To some extent, it's kind of like if you and I have a conversation right. in private, but I decide to blab about it to someone else. I can't stop That's a you. risk you took. Right. That's a risk I took. Um, 
The third party doctrine, though, right, Bobby, has been open to criticism From in the recent beginning. years. Thurgood well, Marshall's dissent so was a strong criticism. It was, but I think technology has exacerbated the criticisms. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are a couple of ways in why that's happened, right? So, first, it's true, of course, right, that we are surrendering our expectation of privacy when we have a cell phone and we are telling our phone companies, right, which numbers we're calling and for how long. But the phone companies are not similarly situated to the government in two different respects, okay? So first, the phone company can't cross-aggregate across data streams, right? Meaning that the phone company can't put together the data it has with the data that our financial institutions might have, with the data that our internet provider might have, with the data that our credit card companies might have. Um, Second, Bobby, the phone company can't prosecute us, right? The, The phone company is not the state. Um, And so it seems to me that there have been two vulnerabilities in the third-party doctrine from the get-go that have only been exacerbated as big data has given everybody, but especially the government, much more ability to use this data, this non-content data, to at least reach some content-like conclusions about people who are being surveilled. So part of what's been going on is the the long-term effects of technological change. Um, we've been talking about this as if it sprang out of the ether in 1979 <laughs> out of nowhere. Kind of uh, like me. Right? <laughs> Just like Steve. What a thought. Um, <laughs> Prior to Smith v. Maryland, you had uh, just just before that you had uh, U.S. v. Miller, yep. which had actually introduced the, third the financial party transactions case, right? Where where the uh, bank account information, your bank has your deposits and, and withdrawals. Same idea, right? That's third party information. It's a business record of the banks, and it, yes, it's about things that you consider very important, but you shared it with the bank, and so it's it was it was assimilated into this third party idea. Uh, before that, there was more of a notion, you know, with with mail, with old fashioned snail mail, the outside portion of your letter, the routing information to and from, that's in plain view, kind of like how when you're walking down the street, you can't complain if the government's seeing you. All these notions that the boundaries of, of what is and is not reasonable to expect to remain wholly private, um, that in some way there are these waivers you engage in right. all the time. Right. And, and it all made sense up to a point, though always criticizable in part for the reasons you said, always criticizable, but it made some sense in the analog world, which right. is the world in which these things were created. That's right. What's happened since is that you, you have this doctrinal generative moment in the 70s where the Supreme Court puts its imprimatur on third-party doctrine, and it opens up the possibility for all sorts of tools, national security letters perhaps, uh, D-orders, all sorts of information. Well, right. I mean, the, the Store Communications Act, right, and ECPA are in part a response. Right. Right to the third party doctrine. Right, because without this obligation to go to the court in that circumstance, as long as the party were willing to provide the information to you, you could just go to them and ask. That's right. And so this is a way of saying no, the, the party can't do it unless you first go to the magistrate judge and and at least make the good faith showing, hey, this is relevant. And and by the way, th- what a great case as a fact pattern vehicle. It looks like this is a classic example of where you would use uh, the Dior. Well, so, so so let's talk about what so let's talk for a second about what CSLI is. Right. But wait, I, no, we need to close the loop on that change from the analog. Sorry. World, Please to the digital world. Well, CSI might help illustrate that. And indeed, so let's use that as the cherry on top. You you go through the '80s into the '90s in this slow transition to the world that we now inhabit, the, the 21st century digital world. Um, you talked earlier about the potential ability of the government to compare the data stream it gets from a bank and actually integrate that with some information it gets from a phone company. There's only so much information that's out there like that, and it's an analog I watch Homeland, analog man. rear to compile it all. In the digital world, we live so much more of our lives online. Our, phones, our phones have exacerbated yep. this. And the technologies for mass aggregation of right. it um, and making sense of it all are growing by leaps and bounds. And computing power is expanding. Now, now Steve, you, you know this. Uh, there was a Supreme Court flirtation with this topic. Five in, years ago. Yeah, in 2012 in the Jones case where, where the government had put a GPS tracker on a suspect's car basically as an efficiency mechanism. We don't want to allocate all these uh, squads of officers right, to, to follow, follow him around for 27 days. Yeah, we got this great technology. Just pop right. a GPS tracker on and right. just read the file. Isn't it funny, isn't it funny how quickly time change like five years ago they actually still had to physically install the gps tracker on the car <laughs> now our cars come with this well indeed so but so jones is, is a great example of the of the debate right so so jones you get a unanimous court that says yes for fourth amendment purposes this is a search now not necessarily an unconstitutional search right, right yeah that's a separate question that comes up but later. at the very least we have you know jones antoine jones had a right. of privacy but bobby the court splits as to why it's a search 
Right. So Scalia, for the majority, has this trespassery property-oriented notion that says the, the harm came when the government agents went onto the property to attach the thing. Right. That is not what all the other justices said. Right. So, so, so Justice Scalia, writing for five justices, including as relevant here, Justice Sotomayor, and I'll come back to her in a second, right, relies on the physical trespass onto Jones's car. Justice Alito, and I think that should surprise yeah. people, right? Justice Alito writes a four justice concurrence that says, forget the trespass, right? The real issue here is that the government spent 27 days using the GPS device to track Jones's movements, that's something that an ordinary citizen would not have been able to do. Yeah, right? This is a quantity has a quality all its own type right. of point, that the massification of it. Right. That, that in effect, right, it was the, it wasn't, it you know, yes, I, Bobby, or you as a private citizen could have followed Antoine Jones yeah. around in his car yeah. for a but while. Practically speaking, couldn't have done what they did. Right. And so Alito says there's sort of a totality of circumstances point past which, Right, we have an expectation of privacy in conduct that the government is uniquely positioned to undertake. So, is it fair to say that on that line of thinking, Smith v. Maryland may remain correct, U.S. v. Miller may remain correct, analog, uh, singularized or atomized applications of third-party doctrine may remain correct, like standoff CSLI. But something that went on the spectrum from a single granular instant to a uh, to a spectrum over a long period of time right. or a gathering of information over a long period of time. That's where Alito At a is. certain point, your expectation changes. It's not an on-off switch necessarily where it's just off until but it's But it is on, a spectrum. But somewhere, somewhere. So, so that's where Alito is. And CSLI is a great example of that because historical – so CSLI, right, Bobby, is technical information that tells the phone company which cell phone tower your phone is currently pinging, I think yep. is the term, right? Right. Um, which in any individual moment can physically locate the cell phone user or at least whoever's in physical possession of the phone. And by the, the way, phone. if you're, if, in theory, if you're in range of a number of towers and it's the same carrier, can triangulate they you. can triangulate. Okay, but there's a difference, perhaps, if you buy the Alito theory between at 4.14 p.m., where is Bobby Chesney, right, and between historical CSLI, right, which just, is... Yeah, give me last year all his movements. Right, let me it's see Bobby's mass, patterns. mass effect to use a video game. So I, I don't know what the answer is, right? But so, Jones, you had five justices ducking the hard question of the third-party doctrine, right? So four of the current justices did not duck it, said, hey, outer boundary limitation here. Now, now come back to Sotomayor. And so Sotomayor is sort of this in the weirdly in the middle, right? She joins the majority opinion by Justice Scalia relying on the trespass theory. But she writes, I think, a very eloquent concurrence to express her concerns that the third-party doctrine is outdated. And it mirrors a lot of, shockingly, right. what we said. It, well, and it's kind of funny that she didn't just go ahead and go whole hog and join the rest. So it's been known ever since 2012. That this all, is coming. Yeah, every, everybody who teaches this stuff all says, by the way, you should be mindful. Third-party doctrine has this looming change hanging over it. This is a great example of something you see the court do sometimes. The justices, uh, before holding right. that the doctrinal change is ready, they foreshadow it. This has clearly been happening. Um, there's no reason, I think... So first of all, you may not need to worry about what Neil Gorsuch's position on this. He's the replacement for Scalia, even if he still has— It may not be 5-4. It may not be 5-4. I, I suspect the court's ready when given the right case. And so they took this one, Steve. Is Timothy Carpenter the case they've been waiting for to say? Not that third-party doctrine's gone, but rather there are here's, here's your first fact pattern where we hold that the reasonable expectation right. of privacy came back in because of the scale and let— as we said earlier, let the common law-like process right. of a million Pickering-style cases come up where we we now fight over the category of when does the mass spread over time digitized gathering of information form uh, a basis for the Fourth Amendment to reattach? So I think the answer is yes and no. I actually don't think it's the first case. So I think the Supreme Court already jumped the shark, not in Jones, but a couple years later in a case called Riley versus California, mm -hmm. right? So Riley yep. is a case about the search incident to arrest doctrine. Um, which basically holds that when you are arrested lawfully by government officers, yep. they're allowed to search your person, right, to yep. discover either contraband or, or, dangerous or dangerous items. And the question in Riley was whether as part of a search of your person, they could dump your cell phone, right? That is to say they could actually search the right. contents of a cell phone in your possession. And the Supreme Court, in a unanimous opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, says no, right? That in yeah. fact, there's something, Bobby, again, yeah, qualitatively It's not the same different. as your wallet. 
or or your or your you know briefcase right um, with files in it right? right that there's something more personal okay. and private about a cell phone I, I totally agree with you that Riley is is yet more evidence I'm not sure I would say that's the one where the third well, no, no, no. So, suffered so, the blow no, of course not because they drop a footnote right footnote yeah. one to the majority opinion in Riley says of course we're only talking about the surgeons <laughs> and arrest doctrine. What I'm saying is when the history of this doctrinal shift is oh, written, yeah, yeah. right, I don't think Carpenter's going to be the beginning of the story. I think Carpenter's going to be the big case after a couple of sort of you're early saying, you're, pre You're pre, saying pre Riley, Jones and Riley are the Miller to uh, Carpenter's Smith. Uh, Smith v. Maryland. So so one last point about Carpenter, right, which is um, our, our good friend Oren Kerr, and by the way, news, Oren's moving to University of South, uh, Southern California. Congratulations, and USC. Better big, weather. Big Big uh, pickup there, indeed. Um, so, so Oren had thought all along, and I, I had, I had, I, I'm, I'm loath to ever disagree with Oren, so I hadn't been very public about my disagreement on this point. Oren thought the court wouldn't touch these cases because there was no split, right? Because all of the lower courts, once the en banc Fourth Circuit reversed uh, a Fourth Circuit panel, had said no, there's no expectation of privacy in historical CSLI. So Oren thought they wouldn't touch it. Bobby, they granted without a split, which says to yeah. me, yes. Yeah, that, that means they're they, ready. And and as he, I think he he blogged at Volk the other day something about look, this is a sign. Like they just think this is important, and it's time, and it's time, and it is. It's it's hang. It's a big question hanging out there. I not I, just Bobby, not just in yeah. criminal law enforcement. I mean, so let's. I oh, know this right? is this is huge for security investigations. Right. So this is the point I want to make. Right? But that, I think I think it should be clear to folks from our prior discussions of FISA and 702. But just to make the point as as bluntly as I can, most national security surveillance, both qualitatively and quantitatively, is not direct warranted, you know, with a warrant uh, surveillance of a specific target. It's not stakeouts, right? It's not, you know, following John Smith from this place to that place. Most of it is data. Right and and you know the data often leads to the more direct. Look, think bulk metadata. Right. What was what was two fifteen? The the USA Freedom Act based. Right, the constitutionality still goes on. Right, leaving aside the legality of the two fifteen program. Right, right. The, constitutionality the constitutionality program turns on the third party doctrine. Always, always, and so it'll be very interesting to see if and, and the, the court will be very aware of this when they if right. and the when national they security produce a, a holding here. Um, it's going to loom really large, and of course yep. it raises this question. Okay, so let's say you say that at this scale. Uh, it, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, foreign intelligence exception to the warrant requirement. Well, so so we talked about this before, right? So 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 to say there's an expectation of privacy is not to say therefore you have to get a warrant. There are exceptions to the warrant requirement. Bobby, the Supreme Court has never touched the the foreign intelligence surveillance exception. If they go lots down of the circuit cases, who have in a lot of them have said there is, an but exception. but they've disagreed about when. Yeah, right. No, it's um, a mess. I think if the Supreme Court goes down this road. The foreign intelligence exception is not far behind. I, it's very interesting, though, because it seemed like that back in the 70s when they had an earlier yep. wave of chances to do it. And they always got out of their way to, you know, this case for sure won't be that case. Right. They'll have a footnote saying we express no opinion. Or maybe they don't even talk about it. Uh, yeah. In the in the 70s or in the 60s, they would have included, you know, Katz has such a footnote. Right. Uh, the Keith case has a footnote. Yep. We are not expressing right. an opinion right, about right, right. whether there's a foreign intelligence exception. But these exception. days, you can't miss it. It's out there. That'll um, be so fun. If so so there. so let's let's put this marker down now, right? This is going to be briefed over the summer and argued in the fall. Bobby, we'll probably devote a lot more time once the briefs are in yep. to 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 why we think already this is the blockbuster yep. potentially national security Supreme Court case and certainly Fourth Amendment case of the Supreme Court's October 2017 term. It'll be generative, that's for sure. Indeed, uh, and no matter how it comes out. Exactly. Um, all right, so so really quickly, Bobby, some, some quick frivolity because we're over time. Oh yeah, but we must be frivolous. Lay it on me. Well, so the, 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 the subject of the frivolity is actually serious, right? Which is, you know, we had once again attacks over the weekend in London. Mm-hmm. We had the Manchester uh, uh, bombing at the Ariana Grande concert, right? We had the, the uh, apparently a, a, a small-scale attack in Paris today. And, you know, I, I'm struck whenever this happens. These are places I've been. These are places you've been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, it's not just feeling kinship, um, right, with, with the folks who are bearing this directly. As a New Yorker, right, that fears my life. I always feel guilt for everything. Um, I'm struck by, like, just how valuable it is to me to know the places where this is happening, right, to feel like I can identify. I think it helps you make the, the human connection. Yeah. yeah. And so and so that in my thought, maybe as sort of an uplifting view, like, you know, so so London and Paris are two of my favorite cities in the world. Bobby, they're not my favorite. So I thought it would be fun to, to well, briefly I'm, I'm, so I'm, opine. I, I'm curious, who has uh, outpitched them? So this is, this is going to get me in trouble. My favorite city in the world is Hong Kong. 
Hong Kong? Uh, of the places I've been. Now, yeah. now yeah, there's yeah, a right. long list of cities I haven't been to. Um, and, and I say that because, I, again, it's probably my native New Yorkerness, mm-hmm. right? That Hong Kong is the place in the world to me that most feels like Manhattan. Um, but in some ways, it's much more interesting. It's more geographically interesting because of Victoria Peak and how it sure. crushes the, you know, the, the skyline against downtown. I think it's more culturally and politically interesting because of its sort of weird half in, half out role. Right, you know what? Uh, two systems, yeah. one flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, um, like it's just. I, I think it's really, really strange and interesting. Terribly expensive. <laughs> also reminds you of home. Um, population density up the wazoo, <laughs> but but um, one of my favorite places I've ever visited. So that's. I'll, I'll go to the opposite extreme, or near the opposite extreme, yeah. and and uh, think about some of the several trips to Italy I've had. And how much I especially love Siena. Yeah. And uh, I just think that's the most wonderful mm. place. I'm a, I'm a sucker. Um, the, 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 You're an Italian romantic. I and that maybe it could be the wine, it could be the food. <laughs> I think I think it's also the architecture and the feel of the place. Mm-hmm. It's it it just bespeaks a period of time. Um, that, that the Italian Renaissance. Yeah, this it's just it's so appealing to me as a as a matter of historical interest, but the artistic flowering. So so Bob is the romantic and I'm the modernist. Is that the takeaway from that? Could, that actually we'll, we'll have to see if that's a, a, a trend line that we can weave through our discussions. Mm. Um, and on that note, maybe we should go out and explore our own city. Go see what Austin has to offer today. Well, it's like 90, you know, 90,000 degrees here. And I'm um, actually, I'm going to jump on a plane right this red-hot second, go up to UVA, because this week both of us will be both speaking of us. at Bob Turner's uh, National Security Law And John Institute. Norton Moores. And John right? Norton Moores, of course. Um, Was it the 25th Annual National Security yeah, Law Yeah, this Institute? is, you know, let's put in a plug for this. I mean, we're, we're part of the team. We should promote it. Um, the NSLI is is a uh, basically a two-week-long just uh, boot camp of sorts for those who are interested in surveying the landscape of national security legal issues. UVA has, you know, right there with Duke, the the, the pioneers of our field in many respects. Um, Scott Silliman at Duke over the years and John Norton Moore and Bob Turner at UVA. Um, there was a long period pre 11 where that this is where this is where you could get people to really focus on these issues yep, consistently. Totally, um, and it's a cool deal. I did this right when I first became a professor at Wake mm-hmm. Forest. I, I went and spent two weeks there and just loved it. And it's a treat to go back. It's always nice to go to Charlottesville. Oh, I don't think we're going to see each other because I think you're just there tomorrow, and I get in late tomorrow night. I'm getting out of there and moving on. I'm going to drive to DC tomorrow night. I'm going to present some of the things UT is doing on cybersecurity that I've mentioned on this show before to uh, to this really cool National Academies task force that's looking into some education. How long are you in D.C.? Uh, long enough to catch that meeting and then go straight to the airport and fly back. Oh, so I guess it, I'm, I, too, am going from Charlottesville to D.C. Are you following me, Steve? I, I'm, I am, I, I'm using your cell site location Are you driving from you. Charlottesville? To- so I am not. I am doing something incredibly stupid, which oh, is— I knew if I kept digging, we'd get something good out of this. Which is flying from Charlottesville to D.C., which apparently is, is that possible. Even a, like, what is that like? A, do, you, do you just taxi the whole you way? You basically just taxi the whole way. Um, it's like a, it's like a four minute long United flight. That's hilarious. I can't imagine that that's much better than just taking a you know Uber. Well, it's, it might be much better. It's cheaper. Cheap. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, but anyway, so so I'm speaking uh, Saturday at the uh, American Constitution Society's National Convention. Ah. There's a plenary panel Saturday morning on the Trump administration, national security, and civil liberties. Um, moderated by Adam Liptak, who's the Supreme oh, Court cool. of the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, the panelists, I think, I'm going to screw this up. Um, Rachel Mirapal, uh, who's the Center for Constitutional Rights lawyer who argued Ziegler versus Abbasi in the Supreme Court. Uh, Nicholas Rostow, uh, our mutual friend Mary DeRosa, wow. um, and Raha Walla from Human Rights First. Oh, what a great! Well, that's a great group of, of wonderful people and, and smart folks. So, that's so I'm so so you're gonna go have fun in Charlottesville. I'm gonna be right behind you. You're gonna go have fun in DC. I'm gonna be right behind you. That is hilarious. At some point, we'll end up back in Austin for next week's episode. And we can talk about the Comey testimony. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, on that note, everybody, stay safe out there and, you know, uh, go hug your favorite uh, reality winner. (laughs) Adios. (laughs)